Good afternoon, church. My name is Brett. I'm pastor of this people. It's good to see all of you, but especially our guests. Welcome. Glad you're here, and thank you for making us your church home for an hour today. Merry Christmas to you. I trust that the offerings that we have given congregationally will accentuate the real meaning of, of Christmas and that you've been more focused in your worship as the busyness of the holidays seems to vie for your attention. Turn with me over to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. We're going to read verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. The title of the message is, But I'm Engaged. But I'm Engaged. Luke 1, 26 through 38. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man whose name was Joseph of the descendants of David and the virgin's name was Mary. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was very perplexed at this statement and kept pondering what kind of salutation this was. The angel said to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. And you shall name him Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and for that reason the Holy Child shall be called the Son of God. And behold, even your relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. And she who was called barren is now in her sixth month. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said in verse 38, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Lord, help us as we study your word today. Two things on this passage I want to emphasize. One, the messenger, and two, the meeting. The messenger and the meeting. It was finally time for the Messiah, the promised one, to come that would save all of Israel and indeed all the world. And God had chosen a person with just the right circumstances to make it happen. It had, to, it had to be a recipe that was somewhat distasteful, but all right. It couldn't be that which fit within the contours of man's planning. It's going to be completely outside, but it was going to be the perfect will of God. He comes to a young woman named Mary in, in the form sending a messenger named Gabriel. Gabriel was the angelic being responsible for, for messianic proclamation, preparing humanity for the coming of the Messiah. Messiah meant the king who would have David's throne and that throne would never be abdicated and the increase of his kingdom would never stop. And all the Jews were looking for this Messiah. Messiah in Hebrew, Christ in Greek. And this was the moment. And the angel Gabriel comes to Mary 
And we get a clue as to why in the world, of all the people who have ever lived, and those who were on the planet at the time, why did he choose her? Oh, it was the timing of God with respect to all the prophecies that had been spoken and how now they were coming down to a point. No question about that. But it says he, he came to a virgin who was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. And something about her circumstances attracted God's attention. Second Chronicles 16.9, the first part of it says, The eyes of the Lord searched to and fro throughout the entire earth, searching for a man, a person, for whom he can show himself strong. He found somebody, and probably the most unlikely person in all of human history to be used by God this way. Who would have chosen a sophomore in high school? And Mary was probably 15, maybe 16. And that might be a little on the generous side with respect to age. Women seemed to marry very young back then. And they also had an age disparity with respect to the person they were married. Men were generally above 30, generally. Always exceptions. But the reason they were older is that they had to acquire a bride price in order to secure this woman's hand in marriage. The bride price was the amount of money that they would pay the fathers intended in order to acquire her hand in marriage. And sometimes that could take a little bit to earn. We see Jacob, the Abraham Isaac Jacob Jacob, leaving his home to go to his uncle Laban's house about 90 miles to the north. And Jacob is running because his brother Esau is consoling himself with thoughts of killing him. So the only time Esau had happy thoughts is when he was thinking about filleting his brother. The reason he had those thoughts is because Jacob had swindled him out of both his birthright and his blessing. And Esau was hot. So Mama, Rebecca, told him, you got to go to my, 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 my brother Laban up north because your, your brother's trying to kill you. So Jacob leaves with only the clothes on his back for the most part. While he's with Laban, who's his uncle, he sees this woman, Rachel. And Rachel's a looker. She's top ten model gorgeous. Jacob looks at her, looks at Laban, says, I want her as my wife. Laban looks at him and says, what you got? Mm, I got nothing. But I do have my back, my strong hands. I'll give you seven years of labor for her. Laban says, done. Let's calculate that for a minute. How much do you earn in a year? Now multiply it by seven. It'll take a, a man a little bit to earn that, wouldn't it? You don't come out of college with that. And so men were generally much older than the women they married. And they married young women because they wanted the opportunity for them to have as many children as possible. So the disparity could be as much as 35 to 16. Normal. I know we look at that and say, ah! But it was normal back then. <clears throat> so here we have a young lady who is, man, engaged to be married, 
says she's a virgin and engaged. Two qualities that I think God likes to, to leap upon when he thinks about using people. Virginity is something that nobody talks about in our society with any degree of endearment. It's one of those archaic terms that doesn't seem to have any relevance to us today. I mean, really, is it important? Does it really matter? No, y'all living in the past. And nobody needs to be given an attaboy or an girl for somehow coming to the altar of marriage having not slept with their intended or anybody else. It's just a thing. It doesn't mean anything. Nothing could be further from the truth. And although most people would not ascribe to the idea that you should not have marital relations before you say I do, and I get it, I understand where they are. I, I don't understand why in terms of justifying it. I understand where they are. Most people would not ascribe to that. The church is the one organization, the bastion of truth that is supposed to hold that standard high regardless of whether its members have reached it. And many of us have not. I get it. There's forgiveness. There's mercy. There's restoration. There's so much redemption. And that's what the church does. But simply because many have not doesn't mean we don't need to hold the bar high. And it seems to be one of the criterion upon which God said, I can use you. A virgin. Engaged. <laughs> Purity. Not just the physical side, but what's on the inside. Virginity represented what's supposed to be down here, purity before God. It should be prized every day. It's not just the acts that people do that are wrong. It's the heart that prompted the acts. Purity on the inside, holiness before God, loving him and trying to be like him in every way, every day. How we think, what we say, what we do, every way like him. Peter said it this way. God wants us to be holy, for he is holy. He paid for us to be there. Hardly any of us get there. Nobody's perfect. And we don't get there by trying harder or doing better. What we do is we surrender and say, I can't be what I have not been. It's obvious that I've failed so many times, oh God. But, you, but you're a forgiving God, so would you please forgive me? and wipe out the consequences of my misdeeds. Don't make me suffer for those. I thank you that you put them on Jesus and restore me so I can be the best version you ever thought about when you thought about creating me. Make it as if I never did any of those things. Create in me a pure heart, O oh God, and renew a right spirit within me. Purity ought to be prized. He came to a virgin, but she was engaged, and wow, that would be problematic for what God was about to ask her to do. But God likes to use people that are involved in something proactively. Because when he asks them to do some stuff, generally, it's always going to require some degree of sacrifice on your part so that you have something to offer him that will give you the sense that you are participating in his will. I said this in the last service. One of our staff members, Jared Green, uh, in this church, he's a fabulous young minister. He was playing in the NFL six years ago. And he was with the Oakland Raiders. 
This was his third year in the league. And he was doing really well. It was OTAs, um, organized team activities. They happened in the spring. And he was moving up the depth charts with great rapidity. And so it was cool. And as he was praying one day, and we were doing discipleship regularly because I knew he had a call on his life, he calls me and says, Pastor, God told me to turn in my playbook. I said, oh, really? What for? Well, he's calling me to ministry. I said, oh, that's great. I knew you were called to ministry. I didn't know how it would happen or when, but this is really cool. He said, are you sure it's God? (laughs) He was calling me to ask, did he hear right? Um, because he was about to earn six figures and maybe a couple of years down the road, seven. Pastor, you sure? You sure? I mean, I'm just about to get to where I want to. And and now I'm engaged. I'm involved in something that I've dreamed about since I was a kid and I'm about to fulfill everything I hoped. And God to me now I said listen to me son if you came right out of college the calling would still be assured but what would you have to offer him now you've got something to give him you got your career put it on the altar and see if he would accept your sacrifice and then bless your life as a result of what you gave up everybody who does something significant has to sacrifice something significant It doesn't mean that that sacrifice is somehow related to how they will succeed. But it does mean it puts their heart all of their life, the things that are most important, on the altar of Almighty God. And as a result, then God has all of them. There's nothing about your life he doesn't want. He wants everything you are, all that you have, all that you do all that you will will want to do and everything you have done. He's going to take it all. Some of it he'll throw away. Some of it he'll use. Much of it, he just says, is an offering incense to me, a, a burnt offering. Nobody will ever get use of it except me. Thank you for giving it to me. I'm engaged. I got this guy, Joseph. He's a, he's a really good guy. Now, these are the conversations I would have had probably if the angel had come to me. Now, this angel and the conversation Mary was having was very kind of human in their orientation. Most of the times when angels showed up in in the Bible, it was an ominous moment, scary. They're big and powerful in, in, in their unguarded and lack of veiled presence. They make you think, wow, are you here to kill me? The Apostle John walked with Jesus three and a half years in the book of Revelation, saw a glorified vision of him, face shining like the sun, a tumult of water coming out of his mouth, clothes that shone brighter than any could could ever be bleached. It was an outstanding moment and singular to his experience. After seeing that, he sees an angel. And when he sees the angel, he bows down to the angel like he bowed down to Jesus. That's how impressive the angels are. The angel actually had to tell him in the book of Revelation, get up, I ain't him. That's how impressive they are in their natural state. We don't see Mary doing any of that. She's just having a conversation. Which means the angel probably appeared to her like a human being. And Hebrews says that that's possible. 
It says that many of us have entertained, I think it's in chapter 13, many of us have entertained angels unaware. So be nice to people. <laughs> but he's coming while she's engaged. And if, 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 if it were me, to my shame, I would have, you know, I, I would have hoped, I would have responded affirmatively like she did, but I probably would have had some other things to say. Like, I'm with this. Oh, good. But like, could you go to my parents and have a conversation with them? And then after you finish there, I got Joseph's address. Could you run down to his house? Because like when I tell him, my fiance, that I'm pregnant and the baby daddy is God, that's not going to go over very well. So I need some help. Can you help a sister out, please? That's kind of the words I would have thought would have been appropriate. But Mary's better than bread. The angel Gabriel and her have a conversation. And he says, all she is, is is questioning why in the world is this person speaking to her in these lofty terms? Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. What kind of salutation is this? This is the strangest hello. Who is this dude? She has no idea, no clue. And she, he says, you've been favored to God. You're, you're supposed to bear the Christ child. He's going to have the throne of his father, David. His, 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 his kingdom will, will not in, uh, never decrease. It will always increase. He'll be the son of God in your, in your womb, and, and you'll, you'll be able to, to raise him to be somebody who is a savior of the world. It is an amazing moment. And she says, well, how? I, do you know I'm a virgin? How can this be when I've never... He said, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you and the offspring you bear will be called the Son of God. Quite a moment. And if I can, I'd like this sermon to be that which impose, superimposes what Mary went through over our lives. Now, there's no way by way of significance we can even compare to whatever God does with us to Mary. I do not venerate her like the Catholics do, but there is nobody who isn't her equal in scripture that's done great. Nobody exceeds her. Wow. What a woman of courage. She's real high on the saint list in my book. Super high. Right there with Moses and David and Joshua and Samuel. This woman is the bomb. Because she was able to take her life and say, so what? Even though I am engaged, I've got my life planned. I've got it mapped out. Joseph's a great guy. We'll have babies here in Nazareth. They'll grow up being carpenters slash stonemasons like him. It's good. I have my, this is great. She says, so what? I'd rather do yours than mine. She's not asking God to put his cosign on her plan. She's saying, I'm signing up for yours. Though, it's going to cost me everything. How in the world was she going to explain this to anybody? The difficulty was going to be not just that which she went through in nine months of pregnancy, but for the rest of her life. Every time they looked at Jesus when he stood up to do something great or say something good, all the people from Nazareth who had, who had come down to Jerusalem... They would tell the leaders in Jerusalem, 
This is this guy. He was born in Nazareth and like his mama. <laughs> when he stood up to read the scriptures out of Isaiah at the start of his ministry in Luke chapter 4, it says when he did so, he sat down and said these scriptures, and they were talking about the Messiah. These scriptures today are fulfilled in your hearing. And all of them said, ain't this married boy? Well, the Messiah is supposed to be born illegitimate now. All of Mary's life, she would be confused as being less than. And she was willing to take that disrepute, her marred reputation, and say, I wear it as a badge, oh God, for the rest of my life. And we don't see any indication. We don't have one passage where she's trying to vindicate herself. All she was talked about, all that was said about her, a bunch of gossip. There's one allusion to the fact that she wanted Jesus to kind of help her out a little bit. That's the wedding at Cana. You have to read that for yourself. All of her friends were there. Everybody from the neighborhood was there. And so she's saying, uh, they ran out of water. And that's why Jesus knows what she's asking. Woman, what does that have to do with me? I'm just saying. He said, it's not my time. He wasn't supposed to do any miracles. Not then. Maybe a little bit later. He said, not my time. But I love you, Mama. I love you. So he goes ahead and does something just for Mama. Those folk didn't need more wine. They were drunk enough. <laughs> all their parties, all their wedding parties were six, seven days long. If they didn't have any more wine on the last day, Good. It was embarrassing to the host, yes, but they didn't need it. But when the waiters came back who had filled the pots with water and showed it to the headmaster and said, he said, where'd you get this? He said, that dude, we, we put water in it. All of a sudden, all, it, it became this. He said, that's the best wine we've served. And they always serve the worst wine last because their taste buds were shot. That's the best wine. This is amazing. Everybody had to say, huh, who did this? Which would then have been some allusion back to Mary, who didn't say, I told you so. But it was a circumstance they could not ignore. It's the only time we see Mary trying to figure out how in the world can I stop all this. She accepted the inconvenience of God's will. And everything he asks us to do generally is inconvenient, starting with when you come to him, what does he say? Pick up your cross. You can't be my disciple unless you die. Extremely inconvenient, I would say, and probably nothing more inconvenient than dying. We all have plans about what tomorrow ought to look like. But he says, you cannot be my disciple unless... You put all those plans in the grave and follow me and do what I say. You don't live anymore. You live through me. I live through you. Inconvenience is the order of the day for a Christian. It's painful for us to say the, the word yes. To be affirmative in our response to God when he tells us to do things that are uncomfortable. But I'm letting you know. There's nothing about being a part of this church that's ever going to make you feel really comfortable. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of happy that you like to come. 
I'm happy that, that many of you want to be participants as members. I'm glad that you've joined in our vision. But let me tell you where we're going. We're fashioning a people that can help win this city. It's not just that we're growing church to help marriages get right and children get right and people to get right. All those things are a part of that. And we love seeing that happen. But the ultimate purpose of our existence is to see the metropolitan area of Washington, D.C., one to Christ. We can't do it on our own. We have no illusions of grandeur. But we have to play our part, which means we probably are going to have to sacrifice more than we want and experience more inconvenience than we want in order to see those people who are not yet right, right. So welcome to pain. Maybe we should include that in our membership class. <laughs> welcome to pain. Everything that God calls us to do is inconvenient. Everything. It's going to go cross-grain to your idea about what you ought to do. It's going to go in the opposite direction of your plans. And remember... As he begins to destroy your idea about what your life ought to be, be consoled with this. That there are two things that you can be sure of about your plans. They are either too small or all wrong. His plans are always better. Always better. And I know you've gotten some real affection for your plans. I get it. You've nursed them. You've coddled them. You've grown them. But they stink. They aren't good enough. They aren't big enough. They aren't right enough. He's got something much better for you. It's going to cost you, yeah, but it's worth it. The angel says something to give Mary some encouragement. He said, even your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, he, she who was once called barren, is now with child, a baby boy, in her sixth month. Now, the interesting thing about this is that this, this angel is talking to her about the baby she's going to have, meaning Mary's going to have this baby. And then he mentions Elizabeth, and then he says, it's a boy. They didn't have sonograms back then. That helps Mary know, oh, either you're a prophet or you're something even different, even more different than a prophet, because you just said what the sex of the baby is, and nobody knows what that is until the baby's born, but she's in her sixth month, so the baby hadn't been born. Who are you again? Who are you again? Now, why did he tell her that? For a couple of reasons. One, to let her know that this proclamation that he was giving her was supernatural. It wasn't just an ordinary conversation. Number two, to let her know that there was encouragement that somebody down the road can help her think right. Your relative, Elizabeth. Now again, Mary was somewhere on the order of, I don't know, 15, 16. Elizabeth, it says, was in her old age. Her husband, Zacharias, was equally as aged, and probably more so because of the disparity I spoke of earlier. And so they, they were like collecting Social Security. They were, they were thinking about retirement. Now, I don't know what I am, but I know I'm not young anymore. I'm 59. I feel 25. I really do. And I probably do more than I did better than I did it at 25. I exercise. I drink nasty kombucha. I do a lot of stuff. <laughs> but I'm 59. And I must say that if God were to come to me and say, Brett, I've heard your prayers. I'm giving you another child, you and Cynthia now. 
thank you. Uh, yeah, praise the Lord. Oh, it would, it would take us through. It would take us through. I mean, we're going to be 78 when the kid graduates from high school. Are you kidding me? Lord, really now? What happened with Zacharias is that he was a priest and he was serving in the house of God in Jerusalem. And he went in and did his service and the angel appeared to him. The same angel, Gabriel, but it seems like a little bit different than how he appeared to Mary. Maybe not near as veiled. And he said, the Lord's heard your prayers. You're going to have a child. Zacharias did not respond with the same affirmation that Mary did. He said the same words, but differently. How's this going to happen? Meaning, I'm really not into this. I prayed that prayer 50 years ago, 40 years ago, 30 years ago. But about 20, I stopped. I stopped 20 years ago. It doesn't have to be answered, really. I'm done. I'm through. I'm okay now. You're going to have a child, and his name is going to be John. But because you haven't responded with a lot of faith, I'm going to have to shut you up. So he made him mute for the next nine months. Just push the mute button on the remote. Now, there were two reasons, I think, he made Zacharias mute. One, I don't think Elizabeth had the same concern when she realized she's going to have a child that Zacharias did. If you're barren and never had a child, it doesn't matter when God says yes. All you want is a baby. So this was the happiest day of her life to now deal with a husband who's over there in mourning, not a good thing. So I think the Lord just said, I'm going to shut you up because you're going to mess this up for Elizabeth. Secondly, God said to him, his name will be John. Now, John is not short for Jonathan, like we find in the Hebrew. John is really a Greek name. It means God is gracious, but it's a Greek name. Zacharias was a good Hebrew name. Zacharias was a priest. Elizabeth is a derivation of Elijah for a girl. They both had really strong heritages in their name that went back to the Hebrew roots. If you saw, a, a, if you went to a church where the pastor and his wife had a child and the name of their firstborn was Muhammad, how would you feel? You, mm-hmm. I mean, you say, okay, maybe they've got a ministry to the Muslims. You'd have to recalibrate just a little, just a little. And for, for most of their life in raising this child, they would have to explain, why'd you choose that name? What were you thinking? Oh, we like him, he's great, but what, why? This was the thing that was going through Zachariah's brain. How am I going to explain to all the people who I know who are most religious why in the world I chose a Gentile name for my child? 
Everybody chooses a Jewish name. You want him to be called John? I know it means God is gracious, but can we choose a name that's Hebrew that means God is gracious? You know what Muhammad means? Praise. That's all it means is praise. But we have contextualized it so much within Islam that we no longer think of it as just another name. And surely we never require anybody who converts from Islam to Christianity to change their name if their name is Muhammad. So there's nothing wrong with the name. It's the context in which it is given. And I have a feeling that this had a play in how Zacharias responded because for nine months he was quiet. When the baby was born, they asked, meaning the midwives were there, what shall the name of the child be? And they looked to daddy. Daddy was, was mute, couldn't talk. But he got out pencil and paper, if you will, chalk and a board, and he wrote, his name shall be John. And as soon as he acknowledged that publicly, it says his mouth was opened. Lots of reasons John Zacharias didn't want this thing to happen. And all of that made for a, a really interesting moment for Mary. And that she realized, even though she, she may not have been a part of all that dialogue, the angel said, Elizabeth has been through some stuff and she's carrying a child. It's a miracle. Now, he didn't say, the angel, go down to her. But Mary thought, wait a minute, that means there's a somebody who understands a little bit about what I'm going through. And she's my relative. So I imagine Mary went to her parents because we find her at Elizabeth's home. 90 miles south. And, and, and I imagine we're like this. I need, to, I need to go see Aunt Lizzie. Why? Oh, I just think I need to see her. Haven't seen her in a long time. Like, yeah. And she goes. When she gets on the stoop and sees Elizabeth somewhere working in the house or out in the yard, she says, hello. And it's, it says that Elizabeth immediately became filled with the Holy Spirit. And she says, how is it that the mother of my Lord comes to me? There was no text, no email, no phone. All Mary did was say, hey. And at the sound of her voice, the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and began to prophesy what was happening in Mary's body. Mary went, oh. And from that, that's where we get the thing called the Magnificat, where after that, Mary begins to prophesy. Oh, it's a Holy Ghost moment between these two ladies. And then it says that Mary stays for another three months. So if the angel told Mary that Elizabeth was pregnant and she was now in her sixth month, and then Mary goes down to the area of Judea to be with Elizabeth and she stays three months, what can we surmise caused her to go back home? The birth of John. So she was there for the birth. Now can you imagine for those three months the conversations, the Bible study they did together, the prayer meetings they had, the researching of scripture? Yeah, when God came to Zacharias, he told him he's going to be a forerunner before the Messiah. And that's your baby. Our boys are going to be like this. Oh, this is so exciting. We can actually read. That's a prophecy about your son. That's a prophecy about my son. Wow, can you believe this? is amazing. Fellowshipping over the destiny of their children. We can't find it in scripture, but I know that's what those three months had to be. And what did that do for Mary? Except to bolster her confidence every day. 
that the Lord had confirmed it before, before Mary had ever said a word. And now she was able to fellowship with somebody in faith who didn't doubt her. So now she's got a whole lot of faith when she goes back to Nazareth to be able to handle all the questions and doubt and unbelief and criticism and scrutiny. She's been at a three-month conference <laughs> ready and prepared to deal with the warfare back in Nazareth. Quite a moment. And hear me, whenever God calls you to do something great, and great doesn't mean big. It just means significant. So don't think that you have to categorize great as being something that is done on a grand scale that helps reach an entire community. Great can be in your household. Great can be in your business. Great can be in your neighborhood. When God calls you to do something great, he's calling you to do it with some people who can help you. He's not calling you to do it by yourself. I've had a bunch of folks who have helped me in building this congregation. I could not have done it without them. Could not have. And the list is long. And I'm so grateful that I can sit around with people and discuss their destiny and mine and how they weave together so that we can do something together to fulfill the will of God in the earth. Just like Mary and Elizabeth. What's on the inside of you and what's on the inside of me is going to work like this so that we can do it together. Oh, it's going to be so special. God will call other people to help you in the process of doing great. Encourage you in it. Confirm that which is to be done through you over and over and over again. I'm trying to superimpose Mary's life on yours without there being any equation to the fact that she did great and uh, did really big like the Messiah and somehow you'll do that. Nobody's going to duplicate her efforts. But we can in our own world duplicate the will of God. We can do his will for us. And it's important that we recognize this is what it means for us because all of us should be carriers of Jesus. We ought to bear him wherever we go and birth him in our homes, in our workplaces, in our schools, wherever we are. We're called to see the kingdom of God advance with this good news about who Jesus Christ is. All of us ought to feel the same burden and respond in similar kind as Mary did. <laughs> After she heard everything, let it be done to me as a bond slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. I'm not trying to change it to, to fit my lifestyle better. I'm not trying to figure out how we can make this thing be, thing be more comfortable for me. Whatever inconvenience through which I must go, that's all right. Whatever I have to give up, whatever reputation I will lose, that's all right. Just like you say, let it be done to me. May God give you the privilege of losing your reputation and finding the inconvenience of doing his will your pleasure. It's always going to be painful. But it's equally as rewarding, if not more so. Let's pray. Daddy, I love you. Thank you for your goodness and grace. You always inspire us to bigger and better.